knew that his fifty below spit crackled on the snow, but this spit had crackled in the air. Undoubtedly, it was colder than fifty below. How much colder, I did not know. But the temperature didn't matter. I was headed for the old ranch on the left fork of Henderson Creek, where the boys were already waiting for me. They'd traveled across the divide from the Indian Creek country, while I'd come the roundabout way to take a look at the possibilities of getting out logs in the spring from the islands in the Yukon. I would arrive into camp by six o'clock. I'd been after dark, it was true, but the boys would be there, fire'd be going, and a hot supper'd be ready. As for lunch, I pressed my hand against the protruding bundle under my jacket. It was also under my shirt, wrapped up in a handkerchief and lying against the naked skin. It was the only way to keep the biscuits from freezing. I smiled agreeably to myself as I thought of those biscuits, each cut open and sopped in bacon grease, and each enclosing a generous slice of fried bacon. It was time to continue walking. I soon plunged in among the big spruce trees. The trail was faint. A foot of snow had fallen since the last sled passed over. And I was glad I was without a sled, traveling light. In fact, I carried nothing but the lunch wrapped in the handkerchief. I was surprised, however, at the cold. I realized just how cold it was when I rubbed my numb nose and cheekbones with my mitted hand. I was a warm whiskered man, but the hair on my face did not protect my high cheekbones and my eager nose that thrust itself aggressively into the frosty air. At my heels trotted my dog, a big native husky, the proper wolf dog, gray-coated and without any visible or temperamental difference from its brother, the wild wolf. The animal was depressed by the tremendous cold. It knew this was no time for traveling. Its instinct told it a truer tale than was told to me by my own judgment. In reality, it wasn't just colder than 50 below zero. It was colder than 60 below, than even 70 below. It was at least 75 below. Since the freezing point is 32 above zero, it meant that we were walking amid 107 degrees of frost. The dog did not know anything about thermometers. Possibly in its brain there was no sharp consciousness of a condition of very cold such as was in my brain. But the brute had its instinct. It experienced a vague but menacing apprehension that subdued it and made it slink along at my heels, and it made it eagerly question my every unwanted movement as if expecting me to go into camp or to seek shelter somewhere and build a fire. The dog had learned fire, and it wanted fire, or else it wanted to burrow under the snow and cuddle in its warmth away from the air. The frozen moisture of the dog's breathing had settled on its fur in a fine powder of frost, and its jowls, muzzle, and eyelashes were especially whitened by its crystallized breath. My red beard and mustache were likewise frosted, but more solidly as the deposit took the form of ice and increased with every warm, moist breath I exhaled. Also, I was chewing tobacco, and the muzzle of ice held my lips so rigidly that I was unable to clear my chin when I expelled the juice. The result was that a crystal beard of the color and solidity of amber was increasing its length on my chin. If I fell down, it would have shattered like glass into brittle fragments. But I did not mind the appendage. It was a penalty all tobacco chewers paid in this country. 
I'd been out before in two cold spells. They'd not been as cold as this, I knew. But by the spirit thermometer at 60 mile, I knew they had been registered at 50 below and at 55. I held on to the level stretch of woods for several miles and dropped down a bank to the frozen bed of a small stream. This was Henderson Creek, and I knew then I was ten miles in the forks. I looked at my watch. It was ten o'clock. I was making four miles an hour, and I calculated that I would arrive at the forks at half-past twelve. I decided to celebrate that event by eating my lunch there. The dog dropped in again at my heels, with a tail drooping discouragement. As I swung along the creek bed, the furrow of the old sled trail was plainly visible, but a dozen inches of snow covered the marks of the last runners. In a month, no man had come up or down that silent creek. I held steadily on. I was not much given to thinking, and just then I had nothing particular to think about except that I would eat lunch at the forks, and at six o'clock I'd be in camp with the boys. There was nobody to talk to, and had there been, speech would have been impossible because of the ice muzzle on my mouth. So I continued monotonously to chew tobacco and to increase the length of my amber beard. Once in a while, the thought reiterated itself that it was very cold, and that I had never experienced such cold. As I walked along, I rubbed my cheekbones and nose with the back of my mittened hand. I did this automatically, now and again changing hands, but rub as I would. The instant I stopped, my cheekbones went numb, and the following instant the end of my nose went numb. I was sure to frost my cheeks, I knew that, and experienced a pang of regret that I had not devised a nose strap of the sort Bud wore in cold weather. Such a strap passed across the cheeks as well and saved them. But it didn't matter much after all. What were frosted cheeks? A bit painful, that was all. They were never serious. Empty as my mind was of thoughts, I was keenly observant, and I noticed the changes in the creek, the curves and bends and timber jams, and always I sharply noted where I placed my feet. Once coming around a bend, I shied abruptly like a startled horse, curved away from the place where I'd been walking and retreated several paces back along the trail. The creek I knew was frozen clear to the bottom. No creek could contain water in that arctic winter. But I knew also that there were springs that bubbled out from the hillsides and ran along under the snow and on top of the ice of the creek. I knew that even the coldest air never froze these springs, and I also knew their danger. They were traps. They hid pools of water under the snow that might be three inches deep or three feet. Sometimes a skin of ice half an inch thick covered them, and in turn was covered by the snow. Sometimes there were alternate layers of water and ice, so that when one broke through, I kept on breaking through for a while, sometimes wetting myself to the waist. That was why I shied away in such panic. I had felt the give under my feet and heard the crackle of snow-hidden thin ice, and to get my feet wet in such a temperature meant trouble and danger. At the very least it meant delay, for I would be forced to stop and build a fire, and under its protection bare my feet while I dried my socks and moccasins. I stood and studied the creek bed and its banks, and decided that the flow of water came from the right. I reflected a while, rubbing my nose and cheeks, then skirted to the left, stepping gingerly and testing the footing for each step. 
Once clear of the danger, I took a fresh chew of tobacco and swung along at my four-mile gait. In the course of the next two hours, I came upon several similar traps. Usually the snow above the hidden pools had a sunken, candied appearance that advertised the danger. Once again, however, I had a close call, and once suspecting danger, I compelled the dog to go on in front. The dog did not want to go. It hung back until I shoved it forward, and then it went quickly across the white, unbroken surface. Suddenly, it broke through, floundered to one side, and got away to firmer footing. It had wet its forefeet and legs, and almost immediately the water that clung to it turned to ice. It made quick efforts to lick the ice off its legs, then dropped down in the snow and began to bite out the ice that had formed between the toes. This was a matter of instinct. To permit the ice to remain would mean sore feet. The dog didn't know this. It merely obeyed the mysterious prompting that arose from the deep crypt of its being. But I knew, having achieved a judgment on the subject, and I removed the mitten from my right hand and helped tear out the ice particles. I did not expose my fingers for more than a minute and was astonished at the swift numbness that attacked them. It certainly was cold. I pulled on the mitten hastily and beat my hand savagely across my chest. At twelve o'clock, the day was at its brightest. Yet the sun was too far south on its winter journey to clear the horizon. The bulge of the earth intervened between it and Henderson Creek, where I walked under a clear sky at noon and cast no shadow. At half past twelve to the minute, I arrived at the forks of the creek. I was pleased at the speed I had made. If I kept it up, I would certainly be with the boys by six. I unbuttoned my jacket and shirt and drew forth my lunch. The action consumed no more than a quarter of a minute.